There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our topic this week is first responders and their mental health. And our guest, Dr. Jenny Cassis, is an expert on that subject. Dr. Cassis is a licensed clinical psychologist who owns and operates a private practice and a consulting firm in Northern Nevada. She holds a master's degree in criminal justice and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Nevada, Reno. She's also a certified emergency responder and public safety clinician. Dr. Cassis has published 29 peer-reviewed publications and five book chapters on topics related to the intersection of culture, psychology, and law. Her most recent publications are related to the mental health of first responders. Dr. Cassis specializes in providing mental health services to first responders and their families, organizational consultation with law enforcement agencies to develop wellness programming for their staff, and educational presentations for conferences across the United States. Dr. Jenny Cassis, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Really looking forward to the conversation. You've devoted a substantial part of your career to the mental health of first responders and their families. How'd you decide to become a psychologist? Was it something you aspired to growing up? And then how did you get into the specific field of first responder mental health care? Ooh, yeah. So in some ways, I think that this path picked me more than I picked it. I knew pretty early on, right out of high school, that I wanted to have a career helping other people, but I wasn't really sure how I was going to do that. I had a really close family friend that mentored me and said, hey, become a paramedic. That could open some doors. You could do wildland firefighting. You could do ski patrol. And I loved the outdoors. I wanted to help others. So that made sense to me. But first semester of college, taking an EMT course, I realized that that was not for me. There were these flickers, these little moments that if we were practicing things in class that were actually going to be happening in the real world, like a rapid trauma assessment or even checking the lungs for fluid, I just knew that it was something that would have been terrible that had happened and that I'd be bearing witness to that. And I became more interested in wanting to understand the experiences of the responders than being a responder myself. So that really led me on this journey of taking psychology classes and criminal justice classes and volunteering and focusing on trauma, stigma, willingness to seek professional help. That all really started coming together. And it's like, no matter what I was doing, an opportunity to work with first responders just came up and I jumped at those. So I graduated with a bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, a PhD, I completed an APA accredited internship and two postdocs at the same time. And I'm now a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm a certified emergency responder and public safety clinician. And I work specifically with first responders and their agencies in a lot of different capacities. So it all just sort of was thrown at me and picked me, I like to say. So it sounds like you hate school and reading and all the things that go along with learning and, and enhancing yourself. Yeah. If you would have asked me that at 18, I would have told you there's no way I'd spend the next 10 years doing school, but that's where we are. I'm curious, do you fit all the letters after your name with your pronouns or do you get to pick and choose which degrees you're putting there? That's a, that's a lot to put up there. Yeah, that's too much. I just do PhD. But if <laughs> I did use all the letters, it would say mama PhD, which sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I'm curious about your private practice and the work you do there. Would you share a little bit with us, please? Yeah. So right out of my postdoc, I opened a private practice called The Ridge, and I specialize in treating first responders and their families. I utilize all evidence-based gold standard treatments. I really want to provide the highest quality care to people. And a lot of my work, because I work with first responders, is geared towards working in trauma and grief treatment. And one of the biggest things that I do is help first responders to leverage their strengths so that they can see progress in therapy. So for instance, a lot of responders will come to me and they'll say, I'm very task-oriented. So I use that to their advantage by assigning them home training exercises, which in turn increases their repetition of that material outside of the session. 
And in turn, we see that they have better retention and skillful use of that material and they get better. Um, I'm licensed by the state board in Nevada. So I do provide therapy to people in Nevada, but I also hold an interjurisdictional license through SIPACT, which allows me to provide telehealth services to residents in any of those participating states. So I offer services to people in 33 additional states if they want to see me over telehealth too. And tell us a little bit more about SIPAC. That's been coming up more and more in conversations I'm having with some of your peers and colleagues. Just tell our listeners a little bit more about that, please. Yeah. So SIPAC is really great. More and more states want to continue joining it. It's this idea that you can have a single license to practice across state lines, and that really reduces barriers. If SIPAC didn't exist, I would have to pay fees and get licensed in every single additional state, whereas SIPAC makes that all a one encompassing process to do that. Um, you pay a single fee. You you have to know the license um, information and, and all of the legal pieces of working with clients in each of their states, but it does reduce those barriers. And then it increases accessibility because now I could have somebody in Illinois that wants to see me. Uh, maybe there isn't a trauma therapist that's specializing for first responders, but they have access to me. So it's a neat it's a neat sort of move that the field is going to. Um, I hope that more states continue to participate. Um, California, which is right next right next to Nevada where I live, they don't participate, and I'm often having to find referrals for people. Um, we're so close to the border in Reno that somebody will call me from South Lake Tahoe and say, I, "I want a therapist," and they don't participate. So I have to know additional providers in California. So again, it just increases accessibility, and it's really useful. And I would think in a, a post-pandemic, post-COVID-19 world, that you know, knowing the shortage we have of trained professionals like yourself, that's huge for folks who need to speak with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-pandemic, there was still a lack of providers. And post-pandemic, it feels just exceptionally larger than that. You're a big advocate of board certification. What exactly does it mean to be a board-certified psychologist or psychiatrist, and why should it matter to others? Yeah. So let me first say that I am not board-certified, but I am working towards board certification, and I'm a huge advocate for it. Um, Board certification essentially means that you've demonstrated competence in a specialty area. So maybe where somebody's educational program gives them the broad education and they can be a generalist in a topic, Board certification says, here's this very niche area and I have competence in it. I've done extensive education and training and the knowledge is very distinctive and specific to that niche. The American Board of Professional Psychology, they're the main organization that runs these specialty boards. There's 17 different boards that psychologists can be a part of. And one of them, it's fairly new starting in 2011. It's actually for police and public safety psychology. And people should care. It matters to other people because it signifies a true specialist, someone that's going to understand that area to a T. And for police and public safety psychologists, the way that I think about it is it shows that you have knowledge of the essential functions of not only personnel, but the organizations that they work in. You understand the unique working conditions of what it's like in those organizations. You can pinpoint common and new stressors that are inherent in that work. You understand the difference between normal and abnormal reactions to trauma um, that's occupational or otherwise. You can talk about resilience and recovery in public safety personnel. So what that looks like for them, what that might look like for their family. And then there's also very unique aspects of confidentiality um, or testimonial privilege that you would have to learn about. And again, part of this competency is you're doing continuing education, you're doing training, you have mentorship. So in each of those areas, by the time you're board certified, you you know all of that. There's been a big rise in telehealth, and especially during the pandemic. What's your opinion of telehealth for mental health care? Is it as, as effective as the traditional approach of face-to-face interaction? Does it have any advantages of the traditional way for caring for patients? Mm-hmm. Telehealth definitely has a place in mental health care. And I think for anybody that sought mental health care over the pandemic, that couldn't be truer. That really increased the ability for people to get the care they need and not stop getting that care during all the shutdowns. Being from Nevada and working in mental health care in Nevada, we have 17 counties, most of which are rural. When you ask people about Nevada, they know about 
Reno and Carson and they know about Vegas. And if you're not familiar with the map, you might think they're right next to each other. There's eight hours of other area in between those two places. And so what telehealth has done has increased the accessibility and the availability of mental health services and really given people the opportunity to get quality care that otherwise would not have access to resources. So that's a huge benefit for telehealth. I think when you look at distance not being a barrier anymore, what you see is that people not only have a greater variety and options for their care, so they don't have to just seek care at whatever is available immediately in their area, but you also see that these other external barriers are cut down, things like transportation, childcare, and maybe even the cost of services, because people are doing this from their own home and they're working in a, a better way around their own schedules. Um, in terms of comparison to face-to-face -face interactions, there is some research that shows that people generally find telehealth acceptable. They say they like it. They, they say it's comparable to in-person services. Some people even prefer it. And I'm slowly seeing more and more studies that are pointing out whether or not specific interventions for specific problems if the mode that you deliver it in it does have a benefit. So if you deliver, let's say, a trauma-focused intervention by telehealth, if you have the same types of outcomes as you do if you were to deliver it in person. And I'm assuming we'll have more answers to that in coming years. Again, I haven't seen a lot of studies. I think more will be coming out post the COVID years. Um, my dissertation was on doing a telehealth intervention over COVID. I didn't have the option of comparing it to in-person because the shutdowns. So again, I think we'll have more answers to the effectiveness of it, but people generally say they like it. If you were president of the United States and you were discussing our country's first responders, mental health during your state of the union address, what would you describe it as? You know, just from a 30,000 foot perspective. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think there's enough evidence to say that it's at an, a crisis level. Um, I think I'd also want to couch that by saying that we can't deny any longer that there are job factors that impact the mental health of first responders and have likely contributed to it being at that crisis level. And I also think that we would need to start to recognize and address mental health with the same degree that we're addressing physical health same type of attention, the same type of effort. And that if we do anything other than that, it's it's honestly a disservice to the people in these professions that are risking their lives um, to serve our communities every day. You, know, you, you talked about looking at mental health like physical health. I've had conversations with people referencing the 1980s when America got this big health kick with Arnold Schwarzenegger and President Ronald Reagan and really got people active again. Are you seeing something similar like that? You know, just sort of a revolution in terms of that mental health, that brain health, you know, people yeah. thinking and being more open about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think in some ways, the younger generations are more open to mental health in general, talking about it, seeking therapy for it. And that's really opened the door for older generations to be able to do that. I also think that there's been some pretty big statements formally where um, different at different levels, people have taken a stand and really made some good changes in Nevada, specifically when we're thinking about first responders. In January of this year, we just have new legislation that passed that requires mandatory annual wellness visits for law enforcement officers. This was something that various politicians supported. It was able to pass through our legislative process, and now it's enacted in our law. So I think that there is this changing of the tide where people are more willing to look at mental health and specifically in the first responder circle, are willing to take a stand and say, we, we need to do this at the same level we're doing physical health because they do annual physicals already. So this is just putting mental health on par with that, which is pretty neat. So the show's called Next Steps Forward, but let's take a step back for a moment. When someone says first responder, people immediately think of police, fire, and EMS. Are there more first responders than those three groups? Yes, I'm glad that you said that. First responder is a very broad term and lots of different professionals are in that. Like you said, police, fire, EMS, they're included. And we generally think about a responder as somebody who has that initial role in coming to an emergency. 
Um, we also can include people like 9-11 dispatchers, which although we say police and public safety and they're included in that, I think it's important to actually name them. Uh, we have police, we have firefighters and all your ground and air pre-hospital personnel. That's including your EMTs, your paramedics, flight nurses and pilots. They're all included in there too. And then maybe not traditionally considered a first responder, but definitely part of the emergency response, depending on the call. And I would like to give some shout outs to, I think it's worth mentioning medical examiner's office personnel. They're often involved in those responses. Sometimes mental health professionals that are involved in crisis intervention or victim advocacy, and then having hospital staff that are on the receiving end of that transport. Those people are all part of in my mind, the first responder term. No, absolutely. And thanks for giving them the shout out as they certainly deserve that. America is a very large, very diverse country. And a lot of places in this country are sparsely populated and pretty quiet, like you talked about between Carson and Vegas. Are those first responder jobs any less traumatic than the same jobs in urban areas? Mm. I don't know if I can say that they're more or less traumatic, but I can confidently say that it's different. When we think about just like you're saying, the diversity of the country, that same diversity exists within those first responder jobs too. And context is a huge factor in that work. The scope, the breadth, the depth, the personnel, the resources, the community, the problems they they work with, all of that is going to be different. And I think you can look at the difference between rural and urban areas and see that. And all of those factors are going to play into somebody's experience in the job. As an example, you know, if you think about somebody that might be working for a small law enforcement agency, maybe it's in a rural area, they might have a, a lower call volume rather, but they might have a huge area that they have to proactively patrol and check in on. And that can be overwhelming just because of the sheer amount of distance that they have to do. Um, or they might have to drive 60 or more miles to respond to an emergency, which impacts their ability to get there quickly. So that's a very different type of stressor. And again, I can't say if it's more or less traumatic for the people in the job, but then somebody that's working in an urban environment where maybe they have a higher call volume, they're racing call to call, but they feel like they can't spend the time on the calls that they want to, to really check in and do diligence with victims. So again, the stressors that they experience are different. The traumatic impact of that, that's up to them. How does public opinion affect first responders' well-being and the job they do? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can broaden your answer beyond this example, but I'm thinking specifically of police and firefighters. You know, we all know everyone loves a firefighter. They're rescuing a kitten from a tree. You know, they're always the, considered the heroes there. But police, on the other hand, are sometimes heroes and sometimes villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that nowhere is that more clear than the last few years, for sure. Um, between 2020 and 2021, there was a survey that was conducted by the Police Executive Research Forum, and they showed that when they surveyed 200 different departments, they saw a 45% retirement rate and a 20% increase in resignations from the previous year. So my take on this is that public opinion absolutely has an effect. It's a major part of why different organizations will focus on community policing initiatives, which are basically set there to try to strengthen or and improve relationships between law enforcement and communities that they serve. But when I think about this, and especially the last few years, you know, for law enforcement and their families, when national conversations are centered around not supporting the law enforcement profession and they're arguing about the value of the job or how the job should be done, it creates a lot of tension because people in law enforcement see the job as risking their life every day to serve those communities. And they see a lot of value in what they do. And research even before this police executive research study, they've shown that public opinion does impact how engaged officers are in their communities and how they perform their job. So I think we don't have to look very far for this question specifically to see the impact of it. And I'm sure we haven't, we're not done seeing the impact of it. There's not a week that goes by where I don't get an email in my inbox um, from policing organizations that are talking about low morale, poor staffing, difficulties recruiting. I think the problem is going to be here for a little while. We know police aren't monolithic with a single opinion and worldview, 
But can you talk about how does the ACAB, and that's the All Cops or Bastards Movement Effect Police, you touched on it briefly there, does it make them more cynical or more committed to changing their culture? And does that differ by cops' age or time of service? Hmm. Well, I can't speak from the police perspective because I don't, I, I'm not a police officer, but what I can say is that ACAB has been around for a while. It's definitely not a new thing. It's sort of come and go in terms of popularity. And I think it's a sentiment that a lot of generation of officers have had exposure to and have had to figure out how to navigate um, both internally, what that means for them, but also for the job. What, what is that like? How, how does that impact their ability to do what they need to do? I think that ACAB is just another specific example of the way that the community can express their reactions to police uh, authority in particular, and also the system. And I'm sure it does impact police community relations. I, I can't say if it makes officers more cynical or more committed to changing their culture, but what I've seen is that it, it can have the opportunity to be more negative and create a divide and more problems as opposed to starting a conversation and leading to meaningful change, if not done in the right way. I've heard a handful of times that more law enforcement officers died by their own hand than die in the line of duty. What's fact and what's fiction when it comes to that topic? Yeah. When I first heard that statistic, I was shook to the bone. It's a chilling statistic to think that the most dangerous part of the profession is the employee in the profession than the occupational things that they're going to go into and respond to. Um, it was shocking to me. And for the last few years, statistics have come out that have shown that that's the case, that more law enforcement officers are dying by suicide than are killed by other job-related factors, things like motor vehicle accidents, which typically do take the cake on that. Um, for 2022, the data that we have shows that we lost 158 law enforcement professionals. The year before that, in 2021, we lost 143. And I think what's tough to tease out about that statistic, and maybe it's not necessarily fiction, but just more context for it, is that the statistics we have are really accepted at this point in time as more of a rough estimate of the problem. Until recently, there wasn't very many people. There wasn't a very formal approach to trying to collect and analyze that information. And when, when we're talking about death and we're talking about death classification, you know, you look at the Office of Vital Statistics for that information, but there wasn't a way where we could track this down by occupation and analyze it in any meaningful way. So right now there's an organization that's doing a pretty good job. They're called Blue Help. And they take reports directly from people and they track suicide that way. The FBI also, I think it was in 2021, maybe 2020, don't quote me on the year, they started working to collect data from agencies specifically about suicide, so attempts as well as completion. And I just think that we're only at the tip of the iceberg of this problem. We have the statistics that more of them are dying by their own hand than in the line of duty, but I don't think we know how big that scope of the problem is. And we won't know for the next several years until we have better data on that. I would have guessed that firefighters would have had the highest suicide rate just because they're typically the first ones on the scene. They see the most awful stuff that's out there. But I was told recently, it's actually the 911 call dispatchers who have the highest suicide rate. Do you know anything about those statistics? Yeah. So similar as you know, for law enforcement, Blue Help recently started tracking other responders. So if you go onto their website, they have a little infographic and they track based on how the reporting information is getting to them. They track for law enforcement, firefighters, EMS, and dispatch. Um, dispatch, I think they started in 2021, but they have recorded data starting in 2022 for dispatch. There were two dispatchers that were reported to have died by suicide. Um, and that's comparing to firefighters where there was 21, um, EMS where there was three, and law enforcement where there was 158. So again, I think that it's probably very likely underreported, the statistics that we have. So this is a good starting place. I don't think we should take this as fact and say this is where we're at. Um, we need a lot more information before we can confirm who has the highest rate and really looking at what contributes to all of that. But Blue Help's doing an amazing job. Shout out to them. 
And we need more focus on the research for this because it is important and the numbers are shocking. We've been talking to Dr. Jenna Cassis and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Women, Life, and Science is the open forum for dialogue, the sharing of experiences, and storytelling. Tune in to hear Cecilia Zapata-Harms inspire you with her stories of challenges she overcame. Women, Life, and Science, Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Dr. Jenna Cassis. Dr. Cassis is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice and owns and operates a consulting firm in Northern Nevada. She holds a master's degree in criminal justice and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Nevada, Reno, and is a certified emergency responder and public safety clinician. Dr. Cassis has published 29 peer-reviewed publications and five book chapters on topics related to the intersection of culture, psychology, and law. Her most recent publications are related to the mental health of first responders. Doctor, did the COVID pandemic affect first responders' mental health? Hmm. I think that the data is still coming out on this, so I don't want to give a consistent yes or no, but what I will say is this, anecdotally, working with responders, not only during COVID, but also currently, that there was a pressure to continue working as an essential worker with all of the things that came with that, the possible increased risk of exposure to COVID, the potential for bringing that home to families, watching coworkers die by COVID, um, interacting particularly for responders that worked in detention facilities, but sort of being in those more close quarters with people that that might have had COVID, all of that played into their mental health. And I'm seeing people in my private practice that are still talking about the impact of that. So the jury's still out on that one. I'm sure we'll see more studies, but anecdotally, yes, that would be my opinion. Mentioned in the first half of the show how younger people are more open and receptive to seeking behavioral and mental health treatment. So we've obviously seen an upswing in people willing to seek mental health treatment, which has, to your point, trickled over to older folks like myself. And the argument is that that was a silver lining of the pandemic's dark cloud. I've been saying that for a year and a half now. As a result of the pandemic, we've heard the expression much more that it's okay to not be okay. Do we know if the pandemic changed first responders' attitudes about seeking mental health care, you know, for better or worse? Or do you have any other anecdotal evidence? Yeah, I'm not sure if it was the pandemic specifically or if that was just this big stressor that everybody in the world was experiencing at the same time. 
that then became a final straw, why people were more able to make that shift. But I think at least for me, what I saw was people were unwilling to ignore their mental health anymore. It's like for some people, it got to a point where maybe before they would have other things they could do to manage it. They could go to the gym, they could spend time with family and all of those coping mechanisms were taken away. So they didn't have anything else. And mental health treatment was something that was still going. You could use telehealth like we talked about. So that seemed like a possible avenue. Um, I know that even before the pandemic and definitely more so in the last year or two, I've seen this slow change where responders are wanting to be more willing to seek healthcare, uh, mental healthcare. And that might be changing because organizations and leaders are taking a stand. We see some politicians taking stands saying that their mental health is important. So maybe it's just the sheer opening up of conversations about employee wellness that's making that twist and turn, but I'm sure it's a little bit of everything. Well, it's not your father, your grandfather's police or fire department anymore. What was that? I'm saying, so it's not your father or grandfather's police or fire department anymore. The, the, the mindset's opening up yeah. a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, the changing of the tides a bit. Only took 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's a slow change. I do some work with military personnel and veterans through a nonprofit. And when I work with them, you've got big, bad GI Joe and GI Jane who don't want to admit that there might be a problem because they'll lose their gun, security clearance, their promotion, maybe even their pension. Does it allow that transfer over to the first responder space, especially in the police department? And is there a similar cultural mindset among other first responder disciplines? Definitely. Absolutely. Um, maybe you've heard some of these examples. I'll just say a few. So have you ever heard somebody say that it's best to deal with problems on their own? or that having problems is a sign of weakness, or having problems is a character flaw, or evidence that you're not cut out for the job. Uh, those are all really common subcultural beliefs among first responders that will stigmatize them not only for having a mental health difficulty, but prevent them from seeking treatment as well. And research has been looking at stigma, not only among first responders, but just people in general for decades. Where And we've been able to see that both attitudes and beliefs do impact a person's willingness to seek treatment. And we're seeing that on an even micro level with first responders in their own subculture. I think that one of the more damaging ones, though, that I hear a lot, and this is where I think the organization has an onus to be a part of the solution, is responders believe that if they talk about a struggle that they're going to have a negative impact to their career. And I think this is what you were talking about with the military and losing their gun. First responders, particularly law enforcement, have the same fear that if they say that they need help or they tell somebody that they're struggling or that they're experiencing a particular symptom, that maybe they'll get passed over for a promotion or maybe their coworkers won't want to partner up with them anymore or work with them, or even maybe that they'll become a part of the rumor mill, which we know can happen in agencies. And so they have the belief that staying silent or keeping it to themselves is safer. It's better. And for me, you know, I studied stigma back in my education, and it's been something that I do a lot in my work now trying to break that stigma. On the one hand, some of the things that people are saying is stigma. It's inaccurate and it, it wouldn't happen. And if they would go through with that process, they'd see that it wouldn't happen, but they're afraid. And so it maintains that inaccurate belief. But on the other hand, what we see is that their belief really is an extension of reality, that the people that hold those beliefs have picked up that if they ask for help and they say that they're struggling, that they get labeled with a particular label that they don't want and they get a punitive response. And if you talk to people in agencies, they can probably name somebody that that's happened to. So I think, unfortunately, when we're talking about first responders and we want them to you know, overcome that stigma and reach out for help. What we also have to pay a lot of close attention to and recognize is that there's powerful forces at play, some that are both spoken and some that are unspoken, that if we don't change those, it's not enough just to say, reach out, ask for help. It's okay. We have to create systems of safety for them to do so without punitive responses. You and I talked briefly about my dissertation a few weeks ago, uh, focused on police and PTSD. And my listeners have been gracious enough to listen, let me kind of talk through it. It's, it's my therapy as I go through the dissertation process. But I conducted a couple of mock interviews uh, a few weeks ago with two local police officers where I live in Connecticut. And it was 12 questions to each of them. 
And one question was, do you feel that if a police officer came forward looking for mental health help, that they would be passed over for promotion? The first officer said, absolutely, 100%. And to your point, it's going to show a sign of weakness. The second officer said, absolutely not. It would actually put them to the top of the list for promotion because it shows that they're open and aware of their, their personal uh, situation and that they've sought help and gotten treatment for it versus maybe somebody that's also up for that promotion who we don't know if there's a ticking time bomb or not. I just thought that was fascinating because it's the same police force, 276 police officers and 180 degree different opinions. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the age range if there was a difference between that and the people that you were asking? So they're probably 10 years apart. Okay. So, so the one who said, absolutely, you, you, you would get a promotion. He was the older of the two officers. Okay. R- exactly. Interesting. Made me scratch my head too. Yeah. So in some ways that, that is interesting because my expectation, again, based on general information is that younger generations might be more willing to, you know, talk about mental health and, and seek treatment. But what might also be happening for this person is they've been in the system and recognize that it could be better and are open to changing for the better. And if they're in a position of power where they could do that, they might be saying, finally, people are taking a look at this. And if I had people that reached out to me and, and had some insight into themselves and they wanted to do better, that makes a better officer. You know, So there could be a lot of factors at play in those differences. And, and to that point, the older officer who said, yes, you you would get promoted. He's one of the two officers that run the behavioral health program if somebody does need treatment. So he apparently is a lot more open to that concept and idea. So that, that's good to hear. Yes. You've also determined in your work that agencies can do more to help with this issue about stigma. Are they the real key to unlocking solutions and why? Yeah. So... What I'll say about that is that if in the course of a career, somebody goes from being evaluated, because most agencies at this point are doing pre-employment evaluations, if you've evaluated your workforce as being psychologically healthy, and then over the course of their career, they are anything less than that, and we can point to specific things in the job and say that those have the potential of contributing to that decline, then I think that administrators and organizations absolutely have some responsibility to care for their people. And I think that when you talk to responders, they also are looking to agencies for some of those answers. They're saying, hey, you said that you take care of us, do that. And so in some ways, yes, I think agencies could be part of the solution. We're already seeing a push for some of that where agencies are embedding peer support teams and chaplains and even mental health professionals into their agencies. They're looking at creating wellness programs. And so there are some agencies that are more progressive and are trying to do something to fix that issue. But yes, I think agencies should be part of that solution. And I think it's because they are, we're all recognizing both in the research field, but the clinical field too, that the job can contribute to, you know, mental health conditions, and and we should fix that. And what would it cost taxpayers to fund these changes? I know you're not an economist, but, you know, and how soon do you think we could see those results? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad that you prefaced that I'm not an economist because I have no idea what that would cost. I'm sure it wouldn't be cheap. Um, I think that if we were going to do this, we'd probably want to do this on the scale that you know, nationally, um, so that you don't have really great resources in one area and then absolutely nothing in another area. Maybe it would look something like a veterans administration um, so that it's standardized. I think, though, that the results would be quick. I think if you put it out there and you fund it and you have high quality resources, we know the need is there. You put it out and people will come, particularly if you make it paid for by their insurance. So it's all covered and in network, or if it's free of charge because it's grant funded in some way, but put it out there and people will come. And your own personal opinion, having more elected officials like Senator Federman and others come out and openly discuss their behavioral mental health issues and challenges. Do we need more of that to put a a bigger writer spotlight on this issue to help things sort of spread generically, you know, down to the first responders in terms of you've got, you know, one of a hundred senators in the United States, one of the highest offices in the world saying I've got an issue and I'm going to address it. Seeing leadership like that, do you think that can help trickle down into first responders or does it have to be sort of within their own ranks? 
That's a good question. I think a little bit of both is true. I'm a big advocate of being open about mental health and normalizing that as humans, things happen to us that can impact the way we think and feel about the world around us. And so if you have a platform to talk about that and share your personal experience and make other people feel seen and heard, and like we're all in this together, I think we should all be doing more of that. And that's that's why I'm doing this with you here today is just pointing out the importance of all of this. Does it matter if the person is within, you know, rank and file? Yeah, I think that when you see somebody and you you look at them and you can see a part of you in them, it makes it more relatable. You know, it's not to say that if a celebrity came out and said they had depression that let's say I couldn't relate to that, but there is something if maybe a fellow psychologist talks to me about an issue that they're having where I say, man, even us psychologists, right, go through this. And so for first responders, a big part of why peer support works, a big part of why that's been a huge response to mental health is that very idea that you have somebody who goes through the same day-to-day that you go through. They know what the job is like. They know what it's like to be in your specific rank. They know what it's like to work in your specific beat. Um, And you can talk about mental health from that shared perspective. You touched on something that you and I didn't talk about before, but when I have professionals like yourself on here, where you get the weight of the world put on your shoulders from talking to your your clients and your patients, you hear a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Who in your profession do you get to go talk to? Yeah. So part of really good, competent, ethical care is making sure that you are in a position to care for other people. And that means having your house in order. So I regularly seek consultation with other professionals that are specializing either in trauma or police and public safety. I have a mentor that I talk to regularly, you know, about the research, about policies, procedures, legislation, what have you, um, involved in my own therapy process, right? To make sure as an early career psychologist, what's that like? What's it like to be in my position? And again, just making sure that everything that you're, you're taking on doesn't overrun you. It's a huge part of of our ethical code as psychologists, but also I think just the only way to stave off burnout. If you want to have longevity in your career as a psychologist, particularly working with trauma and working with first responders, you have to take care of yourself. Going back to the survey I did a few weeks ago with some local police officers, one of the questions I asked was, you know, do they view being a police officer similar to being in the military? And the one officer said, in the military, you're dropped into some war zone and you don't know the people. As a police officer, it's your community. It's your front yard, your backyard. And maybe the person you arrested last Saturday is cooking your food at the local restaurant or doing your dry cleaning or the mechanic on your car. Do you hear about those extra stresses when you talk to police officers? Or do you have a thought on how that would play with the police officers' emotions and trust? Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's a huge piece of what they do. They're very aware that they often will live very closely to where they work, um, if not directly in the area that they work. And so they, you know, their job gives them access to information. They know about crime trends and hot spots. And depending on the size of the population that their community is, it's not unheard of that they could arrest a neighbor or give a traffic ticket to a friend or, you know, show up at the grocery store and there's somebody that they had to respond to a few weeks ago. So it does change them. It it is stressful for them. You know, their guard might be more up. They might not want to go out as frequently. They might stick to other people just within the profession. It's tough. And um, I don't know how you get around that part, living where you work. You've written a paper about pre-employment idealization among prospective first responders. What is pre-employment idealization Is that something that's specific to first responders or is it something that involves more people than just them? Yeah. Pre-employment idolization is the ideas that people have about their job and what that job is going to be like before they start it. It's not specific to first responders, but it is more pronounced among them because they often have these big ideas of protecting and serving and um, being a big part of that community rushing in during an emergency. And is there an average length of time that it takes for disillusionment to set in? And if so, is that the point where something can be done to reverse it or is it too late by then? 
there's not a certain length of time, but it generally happens pretty early on because what you do is you have people that have that idea of wanting to help or give back. And then they experience things on the job that put that to the test. So maybe, you know, you want to help and and protect people, but you show up to a suicide and there's no helping or protecting that can happen. So it's pretty early on that this happens. Um, There's a lot that you can do to try to stave that away by, you know, reaching out to resources, being aware of how your worldview is changing over time and really making sure that you have an an accurate understanding of what the job is going to be before you get onto it so that that violation between what you think it's going to be and what it is isn't so great. Is it possible that it contributes to the aggression that some police officers eventually exhibit? You know, I'm not sure if it contributes to aggression. That's not something that I looked into on in the paper that I wrote. Um, I'm sure it's possible that it could, you know, when you think about what disillusionment does, it demoralizes you. It makes you question your capabilities and your competencies. You can begin to self-doubt. You can begin to look at the world as an unsafe, untrustworthy, unpredictable place, which can be pretty scary. So it's possible. Um, But I'd have to look into that. And maybe that's a great future area for research. Give you more homework to do after this. Yes, exactly. So we were speaking about your research papers that you've written, and one of them was about the mental and emotional trauma they go through as a result of on-the-job experiences, such as witnessing suicides, child deaths, serious accidents, assaults, and so on. What did you learn during that research, and how should that information be applied? Yeah. So I think what I learned from that paper was really how chronic and cumulative responders' exposures to stress and trauma are. It's a daily thing. Their job does not stop. It's 24-7, 365, rain or shine, holiday or not. And their shifts are extremely unpredictable. They're constantly worried about danger, which, you know, when I go to work, I'm, I'm not constantly thinking about that. I can't imagine what that would be like to be thinking of that all the time. And that does weigh on them. So my paper showed that it can impact everything from their ability to transition between work and home, have healthy family relationships between spouses, parents, and children, and it impacts them personally in terms of their health and and well-being. So their nutrition can be thrown off whack, their exercise can get thrown off, their sleep, they can become sleep-deprived chronically, their health status can change, you know, they're at risk for cardiac issues, obesity, diabetes, you name it. And I think that we can use all of this information to really be more sensitive to what the job is like and how it can impact them, as well as presenting solutions. We can talk about wellness programs that we can implement on the job or off the job that specifically target that stuff. We can get creative and come up with solutions you know, externally in the private practice that can address that do continuing education, pass legislation. We can, we can go a lot of different routes to apply that knowledge to, to actual practice. And do we know why people react differently to the exact same traumatic experience? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack in that. I think the simple way to think about this is that it's not only what happens to us that shape how we're going to react, but also what we think about what happens to us that shapes how we're going to react. There's lots of different risk factors for whether or not somebody will go on and could potentially develop disordered um, regulation after they have stress. You know, things like um, they're called peritraumatic risk factors and pre-traumatic risk factors and post-traumatic risk factors. But I think the most compelling part of all of this is that it's in our in our minds. So how we you know react to new things that come up unpredictable things that come up, things where we feel like our competence and our control as a person come up. And that's whether or not we determine this thing to be stressful and therefore overwhelm us. Um, It's also related to what things we've put in place and to whether or not we can be resilient in the face of that. Do we have a lot of social connection? Do we have um, coping skills that help us to get some of that cortisol dump out of our body, right? Do we exercise? Do we pay attention to our nutrition? All of that plays in. And when it comes to individual mental health challenges and crises, 
we're often told to look for the warning signs or the red flags. Is that good advice? I mean, are there really always warning signs? I think that that can be a confusing way of thinking about it because again, it's, you know, when we say red flags, when we say warning signs, that makes it seem like it's very overt. Uh, and it's not always that way. You know, if, if somebody is very good at um, sort of hiding this, maybe they have a support network that they don't share a lot with, maybe their job is pretty strenuous and they stay pretty busy. Maybe their general affect is more stoic uh, and they don't show a lot on their face. The warning signs, those red flags might be more subtle um, and it might be easier to miss. And I think that oftentimes people get upset when they think, oh, you know, there were signs and I should have seen them. Well, you know, unless your job is to know what's normal and abnormal for this person and you're tracking that over time and you're thinking very thoughtfully about, you know, are they, do they have strong coping mechanisms and what types of stressors are they managing? And is that more or less than before, which again, by the way, is the job of a psychologist. Um, I think it'd be really tough to track that and to see those signs. So no, I, I don't think it's always very obvious and that we can always see that in other people. Dr. Jenna Cassis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you for the important work you're doing for our first responders. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.